We are in part 24 of our Life of Worship series that we've been going through First and Second Samuel, talking about Saul contrasted with David in a, how David lives a life of worship. And I entitled this morning's message, When We Least Expect It. We are about to cover one of the most popular stories in all of the Bible, the story of David and Bathsheba. It is one of the most loaded stories with power-packed lessons about the nature of God. This is something that we are going to go blazing through very rapidly. Praise the Lord, I've had two donuts and a grande. I will still go long. All right, yes, it's going to be rough on all of you. Now, uh, I would love for you to go back. We're going to be covering two chapters, chapters 11 and 12 this morning. I want you to go back after we have all the information kind of barfed out on you and then go back and you can read through it slowly and see what God has even more for you because this is a very, very important story for us to be able to learn about Jesus. All right. But I want to begin with some thoughts. Let's throw the first verse up there. Jesus in the wilderness. What was that all about? Uh, when Jesus Christ was going to be inaugurated to launch his three-year ministry here on earth, he was baptized. And we remember that story as being so powerful because the Trinity shows up. Uh, the Father calls down from heaven, this is my son. The Holy Spirit is descending like a dove. And then the Son is in the water. We have the whole Trinity working together. Immediately after that, Jesus is driven into the wilderness for how long? 40 days. He's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. We think that maybe the devil only showed up three times to ask him questions. I doubt that. I would believe that if Satan's going to hammer on the Son of God, he's probably going to do it pretty much as much as he can. But what was that all about? What is the purpose of the Son of God being tempted? Could he have fallen? Could he have made the wrong choice? What would have happened then? These questions all get erupted from that story. But I need you to understand that one of the purposes of that story is this. If you look in Hebrews 2.14, it talks about all the things he handled through his earthly ministry. But let's look at the next page of this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now I'll read this line for because he himself has been has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Whatever you want it to mean, I need you to understand this. Whatever you have gone through in terms of, wow, I'm feeling pulled I think I'm going to fall. I'm being torn apart from the inside out. Jesus gets it. That's what I need you to understand. Let's go to the next slide here. There are similar, there are words in scripture that are very similar in nature and they certainly feel the same when they're happening, but they're very different in nature. Trial and temptation feel almost identical. What is the difference between a trial and a temptation? God allows trials into our life. God will send trials in our life, but God will not tempt. What's the difference? Let's say, for example, you're walking through the office one day. Everyone else has gone home, and there's 20 bucks underneath the desk of one of your coworkers. 
Now, growing up, you had always wrestled with stealing. For whatever reason, there's an internal impulse to where you say, I, I, for some reason, I crave that which is not mine. But now as an adult, you think that you're past that, and yet, instinctually, you go back to that place. You think, you know, times are hard in my life right now. Um, I don't know how much longer I'm going to have this job. It would be neat if I could just even, I'm not even going to use it on myself. I'll use it on, I'll buy something for somebody else. And you're instantly gravitated towards grabbing it. You actually pick it up. You stare at it. Is that a trial or a temptation? Well, the only difference between a trial and a temptation is motive. It's not the word. You go, well, I've got to go back to the original language. It's not going to help you. They're the same. The difference is motive. Satan tempts. God allows trials. Trials are for the purpose of sharpening you, training you, and making you stronger. Temptations are to destroy you. Motive is the difference. You go, wow, it sure feels the same way. I mean, whether or not Jesus has put the bills down there and said, hey, what are you going to do about that? Man, I still am all tore up in my spirit. Yeah, but when you pick it up, look at it, consider it, even start to walk away and turn around and set it down. That might have been Jesus. And he said, you're not that type of person anymore. You know that. A temptation is where Satan goes, I want you to take it. I want to take it now because you'll be weaker next time I hit you. Two other words in the Bible that are very, very similar, at least feel the exact same, are discipline and wrath. When you get hit by a bus, whether it's from Jesus or Satan, it still hurts. Yeah? And we look at that and we say, well, God, it must be his wrath. He must hate me. Hold on. Wrath is not for God's children. It is never for God's children. Discipline, punishment, these are for God's children. They feel the same, but the motive and the purpose of them is very different. Wrath is to destroy you. That is only for God's enemies. It's not for God's children. But take a look at this real quick. Let's back up one more slide. Sorry about that. I jumped ahead. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's fire to the next one. So what's God going to do about it? We are very clear that the enemy is smarter than us, yes? I'm a mere human being. Granted, I'm very good at examining human nature. It's part of God's gifting in me. And I have the ability that I can scan you and read you very quickly. And I can know instantaneously how to tempt you. I would know what your weakness is. I would know where to play that. I know how human nature will work off another thing. And I, as a regular human being, know how to lead you astray. How much more does the enemy know? The enemy has examined you since the moment of your conception and knows all your weak points. It's an unfair fight. You're going to lose in a temptation unless God does something about it. Because really, he can just pick you off. The enemy can just pick you off any time that he wants, unless God is going to do something. But God has done something. 
It's interesting, if you look, it says, therefore, uh, third line down, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. First of all, can we please not be moronic enough to believe that you're outside of temptation? Okay, nobody should be that stupid, all right? We really need to own up and be honest about the fact that no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter what gender you are, no matter where you're at in your spiritual growth, you can be tempted, and if it isn't happening right now, it happened yesterday. If it didn't happen yesterday, it's going to happen tomorrow, all right? Therefore, lest anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall... And then the next phrase, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Uh, one of Satan's best tricks is to say, you're the psycho pervert and nobody else is like you. That is not correct. As a matter of fact, whatever you're going through, it is likely that a large group of us know exactly what you're going through. I know you think it's just you and you're embarrassed and so you hide everything. Nobody else has problems with this. Nobody else has this issue. Nobody else has this addiction. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Yes, other people do. And yes, we're all surrounding you. So no, you're not alone. Look at the next one. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, I don't get that one. That's kind of frustrating. What do you mean he gives the way of escape with temptation? Well, I don't know. Peter had to deal with this directly. Jesus turned and looked at him and he said, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. Do you remember that story? You would assume that Peter's next response is, well, you punched him in the face, right? What does Jesus say? I prayed for you. What do you mean you prayed for me? Why didn't you take away the temptation? Look at it. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. Why? Because temptations are usable. He's not going to take it away out of your life. He's going to provide a wide open door for you to walk out of. We get into places in our lives and we say, Lord, there's no way I can stand up against this temptation. Now, Lord, there's nothing I can do but fall. And then the Holy Spirit reminds you that as you are now in the room where you cannot escape from, you have passed 13 wide open doors all the way down the hallway. Yes, if you consistently reject the Holy Spirit's leading and if you consistently demonstrate, Lord, I don't want a way out, then at some point you're probably not going to get out. But make no mistake, God is not just going to allow the enemy to pick you off. He will always provide a way to step out of it. God is not interested in watching you be destroyed. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. No one is immune to temptation, only provided for. No one is immune to temptation only provided for. I am very clear that I am subject to temptation. It happens on a consistent basis. And what it has revealed in me is that I have large gaps in my integrity. That's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And I understand my desire and love for the Lord wanes at certain times. There are scenarios that can happen in my life that if I get involved in that scenario, I'm not going to make it out alive. That, therefore, I have to avoid those entirely because I'm not strong enough to last once I'm there. So I spend a lot of my life walking around certain things because everyone else feels they're tough enough to walk through them. 
I'm quite aware that I can't handle it. I'm just not that strong. The story of David and Bathsheba is going to mess with your head a little bit, and it will probably disturb your spirit. I certainly hope so, otherwise we won't grow. Would you turn with me to 2 Samuel 11.1, page 262. 2 Samuel 11.1, page 262. I think we're all slowly getting the idea that going to church here doesn't make you feel better. Okay. (laughs) 2 Samuel 11.1, page 262. It's been three weeks since we were in this story, so let me recap where we're at. The last time we were in this story with David... David was trying to console a guy of the Ammonite kingdom. A new king had risen up because the first king had passed away, his dad. David sends his condolences. This new king gets bad information, thinks David's trying to take over his kingdom, and he embarrasses his messengers. Do you remember that? He cut off their clothes so they had to go home naked, and that was embarrassing and humiliating. David gets irritated, sends Israel's warriors after them. The Ammonites panic. They hire tens of thousands of mercenaries from the Syrian empire. They come together and Israel clashes head to head. Joab, David's special forces lead, grabs his brother Abishai, who is his best partner in fighting in battle. Joab says, I'll take the Syrians, you take the Ammonites, and the war commences. Joab devastates the Syrians, so they don't want to help the Ammonites anymore. And helps his brother Abishai. They chase the Ammonites back across the river. And they all hold up into their big mighty fortress city of Rabbah. And then they call it for the winter and go, we'll come back and get you and finish the job later. That's where our story begins. Second Samuel 11, 1. David is approximately 50 years old at the time we begin this story. So some of you gentlemen are around that age. You will have a special connection in here to be able to say, how would I handle this situation as well? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. I think this story is more real and more applicable than we pretend. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes to see what you want us to see? That our hearts would be open for your training. That, Lord, there are those of us right now, Lord, that are living underground lives, secret lives, and we think no one sees. But, Father, you see, and you're the only one that matters. Lord, would you lead us to righteousness? Because we're not going to go there by ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the spring of the year, approximately May, April-ish time frame, the time when the kings go out to battle, why would they do it that time? Because the rain ceased, the winter stopped, and new food is growing out. So when you march a massive army, it's difficult to take all the supplies up front. So it's very helpful that when you march out and go to battle, there are fields that are growing things that you can eat along the way. Because Israel fought every year, all the time, they did it in cycles and seasons. All the nations around had an agreement. Listen, I'll beat you up next spring, but for right now, I've got to go get some rest. 
right? And they would just go out every springtime and then beat the living daylights out of each other, all right? That's kind of how it went. David sent Joab, his big dog, and his servants with him and all the warriors of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, beat them right back again into their little capital. And then they besieged Rabbah. Sieging is what? It's a very common war concept. You surround the city, you cut off all their supplies, starve them out so they have to open the door and fight you. That's the whole point of a siege. It can last anywhere from a week to years, right? There's many battles that have been done, and it takes five or more years to starve out their supplies. But that's kind of what you do, so it takes a really, really long time. That's what they're doing here. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, all these men's groups, if you've ever been around men's groups and they taught on this story, everybody makes a huge deal about David staying at home. David should have never stayed at home. He should have been in the field. And I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Because quite frankly, he received counsel from his leaders. Don't go out to battle anymore because if you die, we're lost. I need you safe where you're at. I don't know if that's really that big of a deal. The only thing that would maybe indicate is there's some suggestion in scripture that the ark of god is out there now if god's out fighting the battle and you're hanging out back here you're going to get in trouble if that's true i understand but david may have had completely legitimate reasons for not going to war that season he is now 50 years old and as much as he's super tough and can still do things you're going to find out he's going to go out to battle here in a moment he took a break Is he allowed to take a break? I can tell you this. Satan can nail you in the field or at home. I don't think he needs you to be in any particular place to not destroy you. All right? So I don't know if we want to make too much of that. Let's pick it up in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. All right, we're not going to understand this unless we get to some maps. Let's go ahead and bring up the maps. Give you an idea, um, this is the world at the time. This is pretty much all they knew. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Let's back up one more. Back up one more. This is Italy. Remember the little boot of Italy? This is Turkey. This is Egypt where all the unrest was happening. Uh, just recently in our world and this is jerusalem. So we're going into the middle east right here. Let's zoom in Right here. We are very familiar with this map We're going to be zooming in right here to jerusalem. The jerusalem that we know today is not the city of david This is the city of david. I've told you that a number of times the modern day jerusalem is on mount moriah That's way up here. This is a small peninsula that had valleys all the way around it. This is where David had his palace and what he called Jerusalem. His palace would have been on the very top. It is terraced down, which means it's a stepladder down. So his house was highest, right? That only makes sense that if you're going to look over your kingdom, if you're going to look over your city, you want to be able to see all of it at one time. If there's enemies advancing, you have all your guards up at the top and they can watch what's happening. Now, let me just ask you this quick question. Who do you think lives around the White House? Is it just like, wow, there's a place for rent? I'd love to just go hang out there. Can you just go rent a place right next? No, you cannot. Uh, In this area, probably the people that are most close to the palace are probably important people. Can we agree with that? All right. What you're going to find out is that's a big deal in this story. How this went down is a little more complicated than maybe you've read before. 
We'll leave that slide up for you to stare at. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Whether he was going to bed for the night, probably not. That would have been a bed. His couch he was reclining on, whether he was talking with some of his counselors, or whether or not he was going over plans, or whether or not he was watching TV, I don't know. But he gets up and he wants to stretch his legs, and like every other Middle Eastern house at the time, the roofs were flat, a little hot inside, let's go out for the cool air, so we're going to go get some fresh air. He's walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Why was she bathing outside? Is that common? Is it for... Women to always have their baths outside, and if she has her bath outside and she's that close, that's a little odd, because I don't think David's the only one that walks on his roof. I would venture to say soldiers do as well. Why is she bathing outside? This is not a regular bath. This is not a, wow, I just feel like I need to go take a shower. That's not this. This is a very specific type of bath. Why is she doing it outside in public? Now we could say, well, maybe that's just where she was. David shouldn't have been looking there. Her courtyard is right next to him. And everybody else can see it as well. What was she thinking? You're going to find out that Bathsheba later on in the story is a bit more crafty and wise than you might imagine. She's not an ignorant little girl. Does that mean she's guilty about it? I don't know. That's between her and the Lord. The Bible is silent on the issue. But what's intriguing about it is the bath and the nature of the bath. Let's, let's keep moving on. And the woman was very beautiful. There are two common words in the original language in Hebrew that talk about women being beautiful. The more common one is the one that says beautiful kind of inside and out. That a woman, and probably the more healthy one, right? This is the idea that, wow, you know, she's really done a wonderful job with uh, doing the best with what she has. But really her spirit is coming right through her. And she's just a beautiful woman. It's almost more about the insides than the outsides that's not this word this word means she's hot that's it it's got nothing to do with any characters got nothing to do with anything else this is straight up wow she could be completely vacant inside i have no idea doesn't really matter right now that's this word now the woman was very beautiful and david sent and inquired about the woman Now, that's intriguing because we've just made a quantum leap. We went from, wow, I didn't expect to see that. I'm all right with it. However, I'm going to keep staring for a moment. It went from, what do I do with this, to premeditated plan. We've now shifted because now he's ready to go do something about it. And he's going to involve other people. What's he thinking? Hey, can you go check that girl out for me? When you involve that, don't you think that that's somehow going to come back and somewhat mess with you? Now, at this point, he doesn't know who she is. He's busy with handling a lot of other stuff, doesn't even know who she is, even though she lives near him. He's about to find out who she is, and he's going to find out he knows her very well. But at this point, he doesn't know who she is, and as the king, I mean, he's been really, really busy, he's been doing a lot of stuff, and after all, the king can do whatever he wants, right? He looks over and he sees this gal and he says, I need to find out more info about her. Maybe I can grab her as another one of my wives. 
All right. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one of the people he asked said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? Now, this is the part I've always missed in the story. Who's Eliam? And that's her dad. Do you realize that he's listed in the Bible? He's one of David's fighting men, his mighty men, his special forces. He's at war right now. Do you remember that David's mighty men are listed out, and they're not normal guys? Remember, we've spent a lot of time talking about these guys. They're the hoorah guys. Remember we talked about that? Everybody remember those? These are the guys that go down to a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion with their bare hands. These are the guys who it's one against 300, and they kill them all. These are very, very tough men. They are very select. Not many people get their names written down in history. But David's mighty men did. They're named one after the other and talk about how great they are. This is one of those. One of David's somewhat not only special forces, but likely personal bodyguards. Doesn't mean he knows them by name. It means they have risked their life for him. That's her dad. Who's her grandfather? He's listed as well. Her grandfather is David's favorite advisor, the counselor in the palace. David can look down the hallway and know down in that wing is her granddad. Interesting. This is not a random girl. You don't live next to the palace without being tied in. This girl's heavily tied into the family. For him to follow through on what he's about to do is intriguing because he knows all the characters around her. Who is her husband? Look at the next line. It says, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the what? The Hittite. Is he also named? Yes. He is another one of David's mighty men. Another one of the special forces guys, which means he's currently on the field fighting alongside his father-in-law. They are all part of this crew. Both of them are named by name in scripture under the listing of David's best guys. Does that make the story worse? It does for me. This is not random. But it says that he's a Hittite. It doesn't say he's an Israelite. How did he get in? Because remember when David was amassing people and God was bringing him from all over? The Hittite Empire ended around 1200 B.C., but there were pockets of them still around. When you became a convert to Judaism and you gave your life over, many times your name was changed. Uriah took on a Hebrew name. His name actually means, the Lord is my light. He was so enamored with Yahweh and so wanted to be a part of what the Jewish people were doing as he changed his identity. He's a real good guy. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. Understand this is not a clubber, put her over your shoulder, take her back. This is a, she willingly was a part of this. They're going to have a rendezvous. They're going to have a one-night stand. This is going to be fun and passionate and exciting, right? Well, David sent messengers, took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. We all clear? That's sex. Fantastic. Look at the next line. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Remember I told you it's not a regular bath? Why is that written there? Two key reasons. She had just had her monthly period, 
And in order to go back to temple, she went through a cleanliness process. She was doing that publicly. Why? First thing that it tells us is she was not pregnant prior to this story. Because you don't have your period after you're pregnant, right? So whoever's child's about to show up in the story wasn't Uriah's. He was in the field. Second thing it tells you is that she is publicly notifying anyone that sees her that she is now free to have sex again. Ah, now we have a problem. Why would she publicly bathe, demonstrate that she's now ready to have sex again when she's about to enter into one of her most fertile periods in the month? Unless she wanted to have a child with a king. Hmm. Is that what she planned? Maybe it's all an accident. Hmm. David sent messengers, took her, she came to him, and he lay with her, and then she returned to her house. Well, that went good. Fantastic. I can't believe I was with a king. Oh, I can't believe I found that girl. That's incredible. Blah, 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 blah. That's so awesome. And the woman conceived and sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Oops. That wasn't planned. Not on David's part. How do we know that? Because David already has one billion children. (laughs) Currently in our story, he has seven wives. I don't think he's looking for another one. He knew that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He knew that she wasn't going to be his wife. He wanted nothing from her but sex. Thought everything was going to go smoothly. Nope. Now everything falls apart. I'm pregnant. How many sins do we commit that initially... We're no big deal. No one will ever know. Not that big of a deal. Let's just roll with it. Oh, and then it spirals out of control. That's exactly what happens here. So now David has to do something about it. He's now going to be found out whether he's king or not. He's not allowed to be known to have adultery. And not only that, it's with his own team. His own guys are all there. It's not like his dad's not going to find out. I mean, her dad. It's not like Uriah's not going to find out when all of a sudden this child comes out. Right? What happened? I was at war. I'm going back in the timing and blah, blah. Right? It's not like this isn't all going to hit the newspapers. David's going to look like an idiot, and then he's going to be unfaithful, and people are going to call for his resignation, and then they're going to call for his life. And Boy, he's got to do something now. He didn't think it was going to be so complicated. I thought the king could do anything he wanted. So David sent word to Joab. Hey, can you send me Uriah the Hittite? Now, Joab has no idea why he's asking about that. Dave, why are you pulling one of our special forces off the field? That doesn't make sense. We're in the middle of a battle, man. Whatever. I just do what you tell me to do. That's fine. So Uriah came to him. David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, how the war was going. Did David care? Nope. Completely dishonest. The whole time he's having this dialogue, hey, dude, how's things going on the field? And he's saying the whole time David's thinking of something else. How am I going to get this solved? I don't care how the people are going. I don't even want to talk to you. I'm just doing this for the show. David's starting to unravel. It says, then David said to Uriah, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, hey, you know what? Now that you're here, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's kind of a weird phrase. I don't know if you've ever said that to your friends. (laughs) Did he have his feet up, you know, his sneakers up on the table? And he's like, dude. No. Jews, not only modern day, but even more so ancient world are prudes, very prudish about how they talk. You know what this says? Hey, dude, you need to go home and have sex with your wife. Why? 
Because the last time you wash your feet is right before bed. He goes, go home and go get in bed with your wife. Pretty blatant. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, man, you got some R&R time. Get back here. You might want to go home. It's been a tough season, blah, blah. Why don't you go have sex? Why does David want him to have sex with his wife? To cover up, right? Because now Uriah is going to have to go, well, that's funny, because even though I was at war, there was that time when I came home on leave, and I, maybe that's the time you got pregnant. Well, that's cool. We now have a child. Looks like David. That's weird. Maybe it's just because we're friends. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. I had a great date, you guys. Just, hey, servants, go ahead and bring tons of wine, bring tons of food, right? He's trying to liquor up the whole scenario, right? This is going to be awesome. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and didn't go down to his house. And when they told David, hey, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, haven't you just come in from a long journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, wait, the ark of God... Israel, Judah, all dwell in booths. They're all intense, uncomfortable right now. My Lord Joab, my boss, whom I follow very closely, the servants of my Lord, all my other buddies and special forces and regular warriors, they are all camping out in the open field. What? Shall I go to my house, eat, drink, have sex with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I wouldn't do such a thing. I mean, Dave, you wouldn't do that, right? Sex was considered a ritual impurity, and so the soldiers wanted God to fight with them and for them, and so they would avoid it during military campaigns. So he was not only that part of it, but he was saying, listen, all my other men are uncomfortable. As a good leader, I can't just suddenly be comfortable when they're not. That doesn't feel right to me. So I'm going to go ahead and stay here on the ground. David said to Uriah, all right. How about remain here today? Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so much that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. What was David trying to do? He realizes he's dealing with a man of integrity and character. What's the only way to get this guy to do what he wants? Break down resistance. How do you break down resistance in somebody? Get him hammered. The idea is that they're not doing what you want and their integrity seems to be getting in the way. So what we really need to do is get them liquored up and then you can get them to compromise. What's the problem? Uriah's integrity is so strong and deep that no matter how hammered he is, he can't shake it. Warren Wearsby said one of my favorite quotes ever. He said, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Wow. Ouch. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and draw back from him so he may be struck down and die. The only thing more insulting than having a price put on your head is you're the one that carries the message. He asked you to hand it to him. Hey, can you hand this to him? He knows full well that the man's integrity is not going to open the message. He takes advantage of that, has him take it to the field, and he is to die. Joab was besieging the city. He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, meaning the hardest fighting place. 
the best of the special forces. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Wait, what did we just read? And some of David's best guys died. Oh, and Uriah the Hittite also died. How many people have to die to cover up David's sin? It wasn't just Uriah. Now, I want you to think about what Joab's thinking. Joab's out there going, I'm in the middle of a war. You pull one of my guys off the field. You send him back, put a hit on his head. Now you have me send him in with other special teams, and they're all going to get slaughtered. Dude, I don't know what you're doing. I don't get it. I understand I'm a man that's under authority. I do what I'm told to do, but I don't understand what's going to happen here. You're not explaining anything to me. But Joab obeys without understanding. Funny, David doesn't. Interesting. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Now remember, he doesn't know why. So he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, he's assuming that David's going to get irritated that a bunch of people just died. If he says to you, why'd you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Meaning, Joab, you're better than that. Why would you do that? That was a dumb plan. Bad strategy. Who killed Gideon's son Abimelech, the son of Gideon, even though it says Jerobasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so he died at Thebes? Meaning he's reflecting on Judges 9 and saying, somebody already died from such a stupid strategy. Why would you do that? Why'd you go so near the wall? Then I want you to tell him, messenger, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. That'll help him. So the messenger went and came and told David all Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, Hey, man, the, the, the men gained an advantage over us. They came out against us in the field. We drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers started shooting at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. I need you to know that. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David says to the messenger, hey, I want you to get this message back to Joab. Super important. Hey, don't let it trouble you, man. Sword devours now one, now another. You know, these things happen. Strengthen your attack against the city. Overthrow it. Just encourage him. What a jerk. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. That is a public seven-day-long mourning. Why? Did she really lament him? Probably. I don't think she had in mind for her husband to die. She didn't know about the plan of David. She didn't understand any of this stuff. David just went and slaughtered her family. Understand her father is already in danger in the field. She's probably worried about him, knows that her husband is there too. She is unfaithful. What is she thinking? When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Number eight on the list. Number eight wife. Um. Why did he take her so quickly to be his wife? Because that covers up and he can say, well, the child was just premature. She's been my wife. You know, we had a kid right out of the gate. You know, it just happens sometimes. Right here, I'm going to suggest that David and Bathsheba think it's over. You know what? That was really messy. That's not what we planned, but it's over. And nobody needs to know. It's just our little secret. What's the problem with that? Look at the next line. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You sure it's dead and gone? You sure it's hidden? Nope. Doesn't matter what people see. 
matters what God sees. And God was very clear on what just went down. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came and he said to him, now approximately this is nine months later. David's been sitting and assuming that it's been gone for months. David's moved on to other stuff. But God didn't forget. Hey, Dave, I got to tell you something about what's going on in the kingdom. All right, what's up? There were two men in a certain city. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought with his own money. He brought it up. He grew up with him, with his kids. He used to eat out of his own bowl, drink from his own cup, lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man who he worked for, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb slaughtered it and prepared it for the man who would come to him he knew that would tick david off david is all about justice right david is still the man after god's own heart david's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to nathan as the lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold that is exodus 22 law if you steal somebody's stuff You repay it fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, that was an interesting response. Are we all clear on what the story means? Can I point out the obvious? Rich guy, David. Poor guy, Uriah. Completely hurts him. Kills him. Yeah? All right. Here's the rundown of offenses from God's perspective. Number one, David, you were rich and greedy. Number two, Uriah worked for his stuff. You were handed it. Number three, his wife was precious and you stomped on Uriah's heart. Number four, you just said you deserve to die. Number five, you had no pity. Number six, you despised God and your selfishness. And number seven, you killed one of my men with an enemy sword. So what's that cost? Those are the offenses. How much is he going to have to pay for that? Well, look at the next line. Nathan said to David, you're that man. You're the guy in the story, David. You just cast judgment on yourself. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel. I gave you the house of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Okay, here's where things need to blow up in our minds. Let that soak into your theology for a second. What is the heart of God to bless David? It's extraordinary. Why? I've given you everything. David now has seven wives, now eight wives, right? He had seven. He has all the blessings of the children that he had always wanted. He has the kingdom. He has everything laid out on a silver platter before him. And God said, if that wasn't enough, I would have kept blessing you that much more. Does God have a heart to bless the children of his heart? Yes. Does God want David to have joy? Yes. Is God constantly moving on David's behalf? Yes. Then what's the problem? David stepped outside of the blessing of God and went and grabbed something illegitimately. And God said, that's not how it goes. You don't do that. I was blessing you. Why are you jumping outside of my will to get what you think you want? 
Are you telling me that I'm a bad provider? Are you telling me that all this doesn't matter to you? Here's the other issue. Is everybody clear that David is still the apple of God's eye? We all like good categories. Yeah, all clear categories. Let's brush stroke everybody with the same thing. Let's stereotype. There's all the bad guys and then there's the good guys. And no, they're all mixed up. And when David does this, it does not negate everything else he's done. Here's part of my frustration in a lot of this stuff. People will see pastors fall and then they go, everything he said was a lie. Grow up. Not everything he said was a lie. A lot of what he said was actually very accurate. And you know what? He probably had great thoughts in his mind in loving on people. But guess what? He's part monster. Just like you. See, we want this idea that good guys only do good guy stuff. No, because there's stuff lurking in your heart that God is trying to burn out. There's a Saul waiting inside you. What's going to happen? The flesh rises up in all of us. What are you going to do with that? It is not so clear cut. David, right here, is still precious in the sight of God. But is God going to stand by and let that happen? Not this time. David's done a lot of stupid stuff in his life. This one, he went way over the top. And God is about to bring the hammer down. Doesn't mean God doesn't love him. It means it's discipline time. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, I know what you did because God told me. Everybody's going to know what you did because God saw it. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me, God said, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now comes punishment. Remember the fourfold law in Exodus 22? God killed, uh, David killed Uriah. Guess what David loses? Four sons. He's going to lose the son that she's pregnant with right now. He's going to lose Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, four of his sons, will be slaughtered. Is that what he thought? Is that what was worth the whole one-night stand? This is fun, isn't it passionate, isn't it crazy? Look at us. Oh. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And that is fulfilled in Absalom, who takes his dad's throne. I will take your wives before your eyes. I will give them to your neighbor, and he will have sex with them in broad daylight. Ouch. For you did it secretly. I'm going to do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. So how are you going to react? Right? You just got busted. You just got slammed against the wall. Everybody's about to know. Everything that you did secretly is now publicly going to be exposed. How are you going to handle that? I'll tell you how I would handle it. I'd start thinking of excuses right now. I would instantly start blaming everybody else. I would instantly start spinning in my head, no, God, that's not really me, and blah, 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 and I'd start arguing with the Lord. God, I don't think that's really the best way to go. I don't think this is going to be best for your people, and blah, blah, and I'm just going to sit there and go off on God. But you know what a life of worship does? 
Look at the next line. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. That's it. I got no wiggle room, no excuses, no nothing. I'm wicked. You're absolutely right. Falls right under the hammer of God. And then what? The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. It almost as if Nathan is saying, if you would have tried to play excuses with me, you'd have been dead before dawn. Don't sit there and play games with me. Own up to it. What'd you do? I sinned. I was wrong. All right. Now we can work with that. You will not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. And Nathan walks out. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him the child's dead? He may do himself some harm. David is still the soft guy. He's on suicide watch. Because he can't handle what just happened. He knows that this child will die and it's directly related to him. He's still the shepherd of Israel. He's still a good man. Despite the wicked that he's done. Hmm. But when David saw the servants whispering together, David understood the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, yeah, he is, David. David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went home. Is that how you're going to handle it? You're exposed. You're embarrassed. God slams you with consequence. You're devastated and destroyed. What are you going to do? You going to seek God's face? We have a hard enough time worshipping when things are okay. You're going to lay there forever? Is that what you're going to do? Because David got up, changed his clothes, and moved on. Why? Because David said, God said it was time. Are you going to play the victim mentality for the rest of your life? Oh, I'm no good to God. Look at all the bad things I've done. Oh, I can't ever go in ministry. I'm just going to have to sit around and do nothing. Really? How about getting up? When God says you're clean, you're clean. Quit telling him different. God knows what's right. When God gives you the authorization, get off your face, stand up, wash your clothes, get back to worship, and get back to living. That's a tough one, yeah? Hmm. The servant said to him, I don't understand what you did, David. You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive, but now the child's dead. What, you got up and ate food? David said, and I want you to lock this into your prayer theology. While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, I don't know, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. I don't know, you guys. I prayed and prayed and prayed. God said he would die, but I thought, you know what? What if there's some possibility that God would change his mind? But now that he's dead, why do I need to fast anymore? What, am I going to bring him back up to me? No. I'm going to go to him. I'll die, but he's not coming back to me. That David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her and she bore him a son. And he called his name Peace or Solomon. 
What's intriguing is that in 1 Chronicles 3.5, it says that Bathsheba bore David four sons and Solomon's listed fourth. That's weird. Did he have three other sons with her, but she wasn't comforted till the fourth? The promised child, Solomon? Or is that just an odd listing? And Solomon was the first. I don't know. And he called his name Peace, and the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord, because of the Lord. I'll make this quick. Why did God use Solomon to bring about the Messiah? It's through his lineage that Jesus Christ comes. David had how many wives? Eight. Could he use any of those but Michael to have the next heir to the throne? Could have used any of his billion children. Yeah? Didn't. Use Solomon. Why? Because she came through Bathsheba. Why? Because it was a sinful, horrible situation that was restored. God's trying to tell you a point. Why does God involve Ruth the Moabitess into the lineage of Jesus? Because he wants to show you outsiders can come in too. Why does he use situations of rape in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Because God can redeem anything. Why does he use Rahab, the prostitute, in the lineage of Jesus? Because he's trying to shout a point. The point is this. I am God and I restore I know what you've done. I know you're unfaithful, but I'm faithful. And I know what I bring about. I know what is restorative. I know how to change worlds. I know how to change lives. Don't you dare tell me what I can and cannot do. For if I bring about the restoration in your life and I bring about the redemption of that horrible situation, I want to demonstrate my graciousness and my mercy to you. Don't you tell me the Old Testament is full of judgment. The Old Testament is full of mercy and grace. Now Joab fought against Rabbah. The Ammonites took the royal city, and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I've fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I've taken the water supply. Now gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it. Lest I take the city, and it's going to be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together, went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. He took the crown of their king, for, the crown of their king from his head, and the weight of it was 75 pounds. That's a pretty hardcore crown. And it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head, apparently for a very short amount of time. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were with it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. Thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites, and David and the people returned to Jerusalem. Why do we have that end to the story? Because it's a sign that God was back with David. There you go. That's it. Oh, look, and now he's successful again. The restoration has happened. Can we move on, please? Come on, David, get out there. Get in battle again. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. We can do this. Here's the close of the whole message. This can happen to any one of us. It's happening to some of us right now. You're not immune. Did God provide a way out for David? Yes. Did he take it? No. Sometimes you're going to take it and sometimes you're not. The times when you're not, God may forgive you, but there's still consequences. 
Just because you're forgiven doesn't mean they go away. But does God have a heart to restore you? Yes. It is his heart for you. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, what a beautiful message of mercy and grace. Father, we have become as wicked as David in our hearts, though we have not had opportunity to carry it out as often. But Lord, through David, you have shown us your heart. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name.